All right. Well, last week we uh, talked about uh, the fall of mankind. Looked at Genesis two, Genesis three, Genesis four. Um, we also looked at Romans chapter five and First Corinthians chapter fifteen. So, those of you who were here last week, what do you remember about uh, last week's teaching? What about the fall of mankind? Whose fall was it? Was it all of mankind's fall or was it Adam's, Adam's fall? fall? Okay. All right. Annie's fall. Okay. And who fell first? Oh, okay. Interesting. What, and, uh, what was the, uh, was there any kind of punishment like, um, you know, Adam and Eve losing their free will or, their posterity, being born sinners, the sinful nature. Is there anything like that mentioned in Genesis 3? Nope. Mm, okay. Okay. So none of that's mentioned in Genesis 3. And um, what what do we see a picture of in Genesis 3 for the first time? Remember that? Or John? The what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice? Who, who, who sacrifices a picture of? Right, right. So we have Adam and Eve. They they sin against God. The only commandment God gave them not to, you know, don't not touch from this. The only commandment He gave them in that way, and they broke that commandment, and they tried to cover up their sin, their shame, because they realize they're naked now, with fig leaves. And uh, obviously, if if God thought that was proper, He would have left them that way, right? Right. And, but He didn't. He had to shed blood to cover them properly. There's a picture of Jesus. Um, yes, a, a pro a proto the yeah a precursor. Yes, so we see um, we don't see that, and then we looked at the issue with uh, Cain and Abel. What does it seem like God is saying about Cain there? Does he does he have free will or not in the situation? Yeah, he's, he's treating him as if he can overcome this temptation that lies at his door, that he should overcome it, that he should master over it. You know, we see that in Genesis 4. And then we looked at Romans 5 and also 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Romans 5, what kind of death is that talking about there? Physical or spiritual? Spiritual, that's right. And 1 Corinthians 15, which one is that talking about? Okay. Could you prove that to somebody from those passages? If someone sat down with you and wanted to argue with you about this, would you be able to prove to them from those passages using maybe some of the arguments I gave you to prove to them that Romans 5 is spiritual death and not physical death and that 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about physical death and not spiritual death? Could you prove that to them? That's a question you must ask yourself. Otherwise, this teaching is going in one ear and not the other. The point of it is to equip you to know the truth and then spread the truth to others. And so you need to be able to make sure you can do that. And, uh, you know, you need to make sure you're able to talk about this issue of, you know, what happened in the garden and how it affects us and what way it affects us and how it affected Adam and Eve and how it affects the world. 
You know, physical death and spiritual death were brought into the world through their sin. And physical death is brought upon every single person because of their sin. Okay, so today we're going to um, look at some other things here. We're going to talk about what sin is. Okay. And we're going to uh, just kind of go through. What I have here is my notes uh, from a debate I had. I think it was uh, probably three years ago now, maybe four years ago. A debate I did uh, with a guy named Pat Necarado on original sin. He's a Calvinist. And uh, I believe he actually challenged me to the debate. So it was on our former radio show called Refining Fire Radio. And uh, you can watch the debate online on YouTube or you can listen to it. You go to the refiningfirefellowship.com website, click on Debate Audios on the right-hand side. It's the first debate on there. You can listen to it as a two-hour debate, hour and a half worth of debate, and a half an hour worth of questions and answers from callers as they call in and ask questions. And so these are some of my notes I had from that debate. I'm going to talk about some of the things uh, when we're talking about what sin is here. Let me give you a definition of what sin is to start out with. Sin is a choice to do what is wrong from God's perspective by someone who has knowledge or understanding of God's perspective on such an issue. Okay, let me give it to you again. Sin is a choice to do what is wrong from God's perspective. So God has a perspective that, that what you're doing is wrong. And you know it, you understand that from God's perspective, such an issue is wrong. Okay? So it requires knowledge or understanding on your behalf that God says, don't do that. Or God says, do do that. And you do the opposite of what God says on that issue. Okay? Yes. Sin is a choice to do what is wrong from God's perspective by someone who has knowledge or understanding of God's perspective on such an issue. So we talked about how we are made in God's image and what that means. And how whatever we are at birth is God's doing. For example, Psalm 139, 13 to 14 says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Uh, Jeremiah 1, 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So it talks about a baby being in a, in a mother's womb. We have one woman who's pregnant in the fellowship right now. Uh, the, the, the God is knitting the baby together in her womb. You know, all the male and female do is donate something. God does the rest. God forms uh, th- their DNA and what they're going to be. And so whatever a baby is at birth is God's doing. Okay. So you see, one of the reasons why I, I dislike this doctrine of original sin so much because it maligns the character of God. Besides the fact that it's unbiblical and not historical, it maligns the character of God because whatever you are at birth is God's doing. And if you are a sinner at birth or have a sinful nature at birth, it's God's fault. Now, what does it say about God now? Okay, so, uh, and some people would, would respond to that with, well, it's Adam's fault. You know, they'll, they'll point to Genesis 5, 3, which we already talked about a couple of teachings ago and what that means. Uh, they'll point to Genesis 5, 3 and say, well, now we're made in Adam's image and that it's Adam's fault. Well, let's say that is true for a second, that the reason why people are born sinners with a sinful nature 
is because of what Adam did. Well, first of all, to show me some biblical proof of that. Second of all, didn't God, if that's true, didn't God make that rule? Because Adam has no, I mean, he's dead and gone, right? He died over 5,000 years ago. He has no power over what happens inside Miss Lauren's, or Sister Lauren's womb, or my wife's womb, or any other woman's womb in here. He has no power over what will happen to them. So it must have been God who made that rule that when Adam sinned, every baby from there on out would be born a sinner with a sinful nature. And it doesn't discard the fact that God is the one actively knitting a baby together in the mother's womb. So you have a big issue here. We're talking about God's character. We're dealing with this issue. But as we said, we showed many times, uh, James 3, 1 Corinthians 11, Genesis 9, 6, these are scriptures that prove emphatically that we're still made in the image of God after the fall of Adam and Eve. We see in scripture that babies are born innocent, as we talked about this morning. They're not born sinners. They're not born righteous. That's a false dichotomy. You'll find this a lot of times. People say, well, are you saying babies are born righteous and holy? No, I'm not saying that. that's a false dichotomy to give only two options. That's what it means to be a false dichotomy. Only given two options, sinner or righteous, when there's actually a third option. They're born innocent, having not done good or evil. In fact, that's a, basically a quote from Romans 9-11, talking about Jacob and Esau. It says, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. You see, so babies aren't conceived in sin, in the sense of they're sinners, people try to point to Psalm 51.5 for that, because these children, Jacob and Esau, had done nothing good or evil yet while they're in their mother's womb, according to Romans 9.11. Um, and then we see in Deuteronomy 1.39, talking to the Israelites about who would enter into the promised land and who wouldn't, because he saw that Israel had, even though he delivered them from Egypt, through the Red Sea, you know, you saw the pillar, the cloud and the smoke and, and the Ten Commandments, and they're still uh, rejecting God. And it said in Deuteronomy 139, God says to them, Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, the promised land, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. So these young people who who had not done, who had no knowledge of good and evil yet, had not done a good or evil, God said, well, you're going to be out here in desert until you die off, and I'm going to let them enter in because they do not even know good or evil. Therefore, they couldn't have done good or evil, since they have no knowledge of it. We see in Ecclesiastes 7.29, it says, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, someone might say, well, that's talking about Adam there, but, but listen to it again. Truly this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. It's talking about all of man there. So, you know, when you're made in your mother's womb, God, is, there's no sin involved there. There's no sinful nature involved there. Even if it, the baby is formed through fornication, the baby has committed no sin. If the baby is formed through rape or adultery, the baby has committed no sin. The baby's not a sinner. And to, and to, some people would say, well, you know, if you're, if, going back to this abortion issue for a second here, if, if the baby was formed through rape, it's, it's okay to kill it now. Well, don't kill the, the baby for the sin of the mother or the sin of the father. You know, it's not like those people are, you know, believe the same lies some other professing Christians do. 
And so we see these scriptures here that babies are born innocent. They have no knowledge or good or evil. And remember, I give my definition of sin, that there must be a knowledge or understanding of what God requires of you for you to be wrong in doing it. Okay? Um, sin is a moral choice by a morally knowledgeable free will agent. John 9, verses 39 through 41 says this. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. And Jesus said, For judgment hath come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. So if you were blind, if you had no knowledge, you would have no sin, according to Jesus. But the fact is, they could see, and that's why their sin remained. In Romans 1, 18 through 20, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see the foundation of God's wrath being upon them, upon the ungodliness and the righteous of men, is that they have truth and they're suppressing it in unrighteousness. It's also the foundation of them having no excuse. It goes on to say, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood, see the understanding there, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So the foundation of having no excuse before God for your ungodliness, for your unrighteousness, is knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Understanding what God, who God is to us, at least a certain base level degree, understanding what God is and what God requires of you. Everybody has that. James 4.17 says this, Therefore to him who knows to do good, see the knowledge there? He knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There must be a knowledge for it to be sin. And you must not obey that knowledge for it to be sin on your record in God's sight. So how did Jesus and how do the scriptures view children? You know, we mentioned this a little bit during the, the singing this morning. Um, Matthew 18.3, Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of, God, kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as his little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So while certain uh, Christian theologies push down children and say they're sinners, they're under the wrath of God from their mother's womb, they have sinful natures, they're children of wrath, they'll say these things and point to scriptures that supposedly support these things, but Jesus' own perspective on children, he lifted them up. You must become like them. And you can't enter the kingdom of God. Uh, you, you must humble yourself like these little children. Now, if they are wicked sinners, depraved, totally depraved, wretches, why should he hold them up like that? He shouldn't. We see one chapter later in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him, and they might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them and said, These are sinners, send them away. But Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, you know, I threw something in there. You obviously understood that. They didn't say they were sinners in the way, but they tried to send them away. And so he, but Jesus lifted them up once again. Uh, for of such 
is the kingdom of heaven. Let them come to me. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. See, there's a, there's a lack of understanding for children. However, in malice be babes. You see that? So they have no malice, and they have no understanding. There's a connection there. But in, in, but in understanding be mature. So brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. So if babies aren't sinners, according to the scriptures, and we've talked about many of the scriptures that people use to back that up, like Psalm 51.5, Psalm 58.3, Romans 5.12-19, Genesis 5.3, looked at a lot of those, okay? And maybe next week or we week after that, we'll look at some more of them, if the Lord leads me to. But if that's not true, if, they, if they're not sinners when they're born, or when they're toddlers, or when they're little children, when do they become sinners? The Bible uses this word called youth. Youth, Okay? Um, in, in Jewish tradition, there's something called bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. Bar means son, bat means daughter. Bar and bat. And in Jewish tradition, bar and bat mitzvah means son of the commandment or daughter of the commandment. It's one who the commandments apply to. They're now accountable before God in the, their uh, parents' eyes to obey the commandments. Excuse me, and for, for daughters, it was 12 years old, and for boys, it was 13 years old. Okay? Yeah, it doesn't sound right, does it, Sarah? <laughs> Guy's got another year there. Uh, but, um, but the fact is, we know scientifically now, it, it seems pretty echoes, girls mature faster than boys do. Just the way it is. In every sense of the word. They, they, sometimes you'll, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, there were some girls who were a little bit taller than me. When I got to eighth grade, there, I was about five inches taller than them by then. You know, so it just, it's the way it works. And intellectually and reasoning, they under, they mature less quickly than, than girls do. And so that you don't even, and in Jewish tradition, you don't even have to have a ceremony. Sometimes you'll have a bar mitzvah party or a bat mitzvah party, but that's not even required in their eyes. Just when you came to the age, you were required now. You were required to keep God's commandments. And so people corrupt themselves from their youth. Okay? Because at, at that point in time, you begin to understand things before God. You understand what God requires of you. You know, I may teach my little children. I may teach Emily. She's eight years old. I may teach her the scriptures. I may teach her the commandments of God. And maybe she doesn't understand them. She's kind of like in the in-between area here. Maybe she doesn't understand them yet. Malachi is six years old. I was sure that he understood it. And that's the time he became a Christian, shortly after that. When I knew he understood these things. And so each child will be different as they mature. But for the Jewish tradition, that was the cutoff point. If, if you weren't there by 12 or 13, you were there now, in their eyes. Okay? But people corrupt themselves. So listen to some of the scriptures. Genesis 6, 12. For God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, the word corrupt, what does that mean? It means that something is being used in a way it was not meant to be used. That has gone away from its initial purpose, its initial use in life. So, it's to go away from something. You know, we think of the word, it's a synonym of corrupt is pervert. Corrupt or pervert. And so, but if they corrupted themselves, there was a, a point in time when they weren't corrupt. They corrupted themselves. And so, uh, all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And of course, we know in Genesis 6, there was an exception there. Who was the exception? Noah. Yeah, Noah and his family. They were the exception. Genesis 8.21. This is after the flood now. 
the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, don't let someone, for example, like Paul Washer, fool you into believing that the word youth in Hebrew and Greek is the same thing as the word for baby. Not true. Either he is ignorant of the facts, or he is downright lying. He says this in several of his teachings. It's not true. I encourage you to look it up for yourself. And, and youth, the word youth gives the same connotation that I just gave you about bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. It's within the word. Okay? Deuteronomy 32.5 says, They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. So who corrupted them? Was it Adam and Eve who corrupted them, or did they corrupt themselves? They corrupted themselves. So it's always, every time there's sin in someone's life, the finger is always pointing at that person. If it's legitimate sin, they have knowledge of right and wrong, they know what God requires on a certain issue, and they do it, the finger is always pointing at them. It's never pointed at Adam and Eve, never pointed at their parents or grandparents, Never point at society or culture or how difficult it is to overcome sin. It's always pointed at them. And that's who the thing you're really pointed at on Judgment Day if they don't repent and trust in Christ and begin to follow him in obedience. Job thirteen twenty six. Job says, For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Once again, focus on the word youth here. Psalm 25, 7. David said, Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. Jeremiah 3, 25 says, Let us lie down in our shame and let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. So it started at youth. That's when sin starts. And once again, Isaiah 53, 6, talking about being corrupted or going astray. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid in him the iniquity of us all. So about going astray and turning our own way, which means we weren't astray at some point in time. We weren't turned our own way at some point in time. We also have talked about this. Uh, sin is not transferable. Remember we talked about Ezekiel 18? How the son will not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. So sin is not a transferable thing. For something to be transferable, it really has to be physical. Okay, in some way. Like if I'm going to transfer money from one PayPal account to my bank account, that money is actual physical. It's there. It's real. It's substance. Even if we go to just digital currency, isn't there something that has to be carried along there, like a chip or a card? It has to be there. It's there. You know, even then it's physical. Um, you know, if I transfer, uh, if I sell a car and I transfer the title, the car is physical, the title's physical. So a transfer has to be a physical thing, but something that's not physical, I mean, like sin is not a physical thing, not a substance. It can't be transferred from me to you. I mean, if some people will say, well, sin is in your blood. Well, if sin's in my blood, then let's, that would mean the person who has the least amount of blood would have the least amount of sin. And a person who had the most amount of blood would have the most amount of sin. Does that sound accurate? You know, some, some would say for for the man that the, that sin is in the semen. Well, if that's true, we need to take it out, put it on a microscope, remove the sin from it, and then impregnate the wife. But it's not a physical substance. Sin is a choice by a free will moral agent who understands right and wrong. 
1 John 3, 4 says this, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So sin is breaking God's law. And of course, we know when we looked at Romans 5 last week that you must have the law in place in order for sin to be accounted to you. Remember that? Romans 5 from last week, we looked at it. That where there is no law, there is no sin. But we all have the law of God written upon our hearts and our conscience, right? Our bodies, this flesh and bone we see here, the muscle, the no matter how much or how little you may have, um, is an instrument. It is not sinful in itself either. We look at Romans 6, 12-13, which says, And do not let sin reign in your mortal, mortal body, that you obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You know, Isaiah was playing the guitar up here earlier. He was using that instrument, that guitar, for God's glory. But he can go up on a stage and sing rock music and use it for his glory. Or for the devil's glory, right? But guitars in and of themselves are not sinful or more righteous. It's the way you use them. You could also use the guitar and break it over someone's head. And that would be a sinful use of it too, right? You know, so that would be violence towards them. Um, but the instrument in and of itself is how it's presented, how it's used, which determines whether it's righteous or unrighteous. Same thing with your bodies. Imagine your body's like a guitar, so to speak. You want to use it for God's glory. You can use your uh, your hands and your strength to to build things, or you can use it to tear things down. Okay, you can take uh, you know I've used before a knife in your hands and cut up tomatoes and make a nice salad, or you can use it to stab somebody. Right, you could do that, and so you have that ability. Um, you can use your your body for fornication and for drunkenness. Which the Bible says not to do. Or you can use it for holy matrimony and drinking water, which is good for you. And so they're instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness. Above and beyond that, our bodies reject sin. Now think about this for a second. Some of you can't relate to this, but I can because I was this way. When I was a drunkard, when I first started being a drunkard, my body rejected it. I mean, I got sick, sick, sick. Throwing up, other things that happened to me, get a headache. You know, I was at a hangover the next morning. Um, after a while, my body started to get used to it a little bit, but my body was rejecting that, wasn't it? You know, if you're if you're taking a test in homeschool and your siblings around you taking the same test, and oh, mom catches you cheating, your face automatically turns red, involuntarily. You don't think about it turning red. You don't make it turn red. It just turns red because you know you're caught and your conscience is working on you. Same thing with being caught lying. I see it in my children's face when I, I, they think they're getting away with something. And I say, oh no, I know you're lying. And their, their whole body language just changes all of a sudden. Involuntarily because I know they're caught. Um, you know, fornication. People get STDs and get all kinds of problems with that. And so it, it tells you your body's rejecting these things. Okay? Romans 1, 26 and 28 says, For this reason, talking about homosexuals here, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. 
Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God and their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So homosexuals do things which are not fitting, which are unnatural, which are shameful, which are vile. But they're unnatural. They're against your nature. And they're shameful things. And God gave them over to a debased mind because they didn't want to retain the knowledge of God, which would have stopped them from doing such abominable things. Because he's watching at all times. And we know that Romans 2, 14 and 15 says there, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law. You see, we have a good nature when we're born. We have, uh, we have a conscience given to us by God. With his, his law written upon their hearts. That's good. And your conscience, if you haven't corrupted or seared or defiled it, will, co- will correct you. It's like a piece of God inside you telling you, don't do this, do this. He'll excuse you when you do right. Oh, good job. And he'll accuse you, no, 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 when you're doing wrong. And hopefully, you know, parents and the Bible and everything else are helping you out with that and they're agreeing with your conscience. The problem because becomes when someone disagrees with what your conscience tells you, which helps not to benefit you, but it helps to sear and, and defile and corrupt your conscience. Like telling you if you feel bad about your saying, that's from the devil. I don't know if that agrees with your conscience or not. So our bodies are instruments to be used for righteousness or unrighteousness. Our bodies reject sin as unnatural, as abnormal, as against our nature. Not only that, Jesus came and lived in the same bodies we're in right now. Same kind of bodies. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise shared in the same the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Yes. So he had the same thing, same body, same flesh and blood. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Therefore in all things, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. So in all things, he was made like his brethren. And that's one of the foundations that he's able to help you when you're tempted. Because he was tempted at all points, like we were, like we are, you're without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Same body, same flesh, same blood. Same temptation. The difference is no sin. And it wasn't because he had a different birth than you or I. It wasn't because his body was different or that he wasn't born a sinner with a sinful nature because none of us were born that way. In fact, if you, if you go to 1 John 4, 2 through 3, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is coming to flesh is not of God. Now, there's only a few translations of the Bible that use the word sinful nature. One of them is called the NIV, which I deplore. God used it for a long time in my life, but I deplore it now because of what I understand now. Knowledge equals accountability, so I reject it. And they use this word, this Greek word, sarx. 
And they take one Greek word and they translate it as two English words, sinful nature. You see that in Romans 7 in an NIV translation of the Bible. Okay? But if they were consistent about their translation of Sarks, they would have to uh, translate 1 John 4, 2 through 3, like this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the sinful nature is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the sinful nature is not of God. Now, you see the problem now? You're taking one Greek word, Sarks, which means flesh, the body you're born into, this flesh and blood you have, the one that Jesus has the same as us, and you're taking that one Greek word and making it sinful nature. But they're not being consistent. because so They have to be consistent. They have to say that Jesus Christ came into sinful nature. And if you don't say that yourself, you're the spirit of the Antichrist. And so that's a big problem. Second John 7, the same thing. This is the, the, the legitimate translation of it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Let's give it the uh, other translation now. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the sinful nature. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. They can't have it both ways. If he didn't have a sinful nature and he wasn't born a sinner, then either were we. You can't have it both ways. Because same flesh and blood, same body, same temptations, yet no sin. That's why he's an example for us. Yes. And so we become sinners and spiritually dead when we come to the age of reason, understanding, knowledge, accountability, and choose to sin, which will be different for everybody. Different for everybody. We see this in Romans 7, 9. It says, I was once, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now what does the commandment do? It brings what? Knowledge. It brings understanding. It brings light. Sin revived and he died. Romans 7, 11. For sin, Taking an occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. James 1, 14-15 says this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So there's knowledge. He sins against the knowledge he has. Death comes. Deception comes. It kills me. And being spiritually dead, we talked about we talked about Ephesians two not too long ago. And we talked about the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that, and, and what it means to be dead in that sense. And Isaiah fifty nine two going along with that, being spiritually dead means that people have a broken relationship with God. That's what it means. Isaiah fifty nine two says, "But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear." He will not hear. And we look to Luke 15, where it talks about that. Colossians 1.21 says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet he is now reconciled. So what made you alienated from God? What made you an enemy of God? Was it Adam's wicked works? Was it Eve's wicked works? Was it your grandfather's wicked works? Or was it your wicked works? Your wicked works, what it says in Colossians 1.21. But now you're reconciled. So you see, there, when you sin, you're alienated, you're an enemy of God, you're not his friend, you're not reconciled to him, you have no relationship with him, so you need to be reconciled. You need to be reconciled. And so but your wicked works is what, re, what alienates you from God and makes you an enemy of God. 
And then we see that everyone is accountable for their own sin, their own personal sin in Scripture. In Genesis 18.25, we see the account of Abraham talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says, Far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes. The judge of all the earth will do right. He will not slay the righteous with the wicked. They're all accountable for their own personal sins. And we looked at Ezekiel 18. I'll, I'll encourage you to go back and read it through again, that whole chapter, because it really slaughters a lot of these false doctrines. just destroys them. It really does. In Matthew 12, 36 through 37, it says, this is Jesus talking to you, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So it's your own words you're responsible for. You don't give an account for every idle word. You're not responsible for your parents' words or for your children's words. You're responsible for your own words, and you'll give an account of them. Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Not according to someone else's deeds, but according to his deeds. So you give an account for your own sins before God. Let's see a couple more in that category here. Uh, Romans 2, 5 through 11. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up wrath for yourself in a day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. No partiality with God. You'll give an account for your sins and for your righteousness. And people will give an account for their sins and their righteousness. In Revelation 22.12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And we've looked at it several times. We'll be judged according to our knowledge, according to our understanding when it comes to the scriptures. Uh, one is Second Peter 2.21, which says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment and deliver to them. So they have more knowledge, which means more accountability, more responsibility, greater judgment for them. That's what it means. Uh, Matthew ten fourteen to 15 And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from the house or city, talking to disciples now, shake off the dust from your feet, assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And these, these cities that the apostles were going to weren't cities full of Sodomites. There are cities full of moral Jews, simply for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, brought them through one of his disciples. And they're going to have a worse day on Judgment Day. Okay, let me give you some uh, some questions you can ask people if they believe in these false doctrines, original sin and sinful nature, okay? Or they believe that, you're, that, that sin is transferable, or that you're accountable for someone else's sin besides your own. I'll give you some questions you can ask them. Okay, you can ask them what sin is. What is a sin nature? Um, here's a good question. Is sin hereditary? If they say yes to that, then is righteousness hereditary as well? 
if if sin is hereditary, shouldn't righteousness be hereditary? Because they're in the same category. They're both morality. They're both dealing with right and wrong. So if sin is hereditary, if I can pass on sin to my children, shouldn't I be able to pass on righteousness to them too? So they may be accountable for my drunkenness and my fornication in the past, but they're also, they get the rewards that I get because I'm living holy now. And so each child that's born from, from my wife's womb, from our union, they get more and more rewards. Because I'm living more and more righteously. That's the way it should be, logically speaking. If sin is hereditary, so should righteousness be. And we talked about this last week. If if sin nature and original sin is true, why isn't it mentioned in Genesis 3 in the penalty clause? When God divvies out the punishments in Genesis 3, why isn't it mentioned there? Why doesn't God tell Adam and Eve that? You can ask him, is there a difference between sin and temptation? Because a lot of times people get confused with that. They don't understand there's a difference between sin and temptation. Christ was tempted in all points, just like we are, yet without sin. I get tempted every day. You can ask them questions like, are men accountable for their own sins, or only for the, or for the sins of others as well? And most times people will say, well, why do, why do all children decide to sin if, if they aren't born with a sinful nature, aren't born sinners? You know, shouldn't there be at least one who's never sinned? Well, there has been one who's never sinned. His name is Jesus. Right. <laughs> so they're assuming they're assuming their position that Jesus had some kind of different nature in order to ask that question in the first place. And they haven't proven that. Uh, so what they're basically saying is that you have to have something within you that makes you sin to guarantee that everybody will sin. Now, so the question I have in response to that is, did Lucifer, a third of the angels, and Adam and Eve have free will? Or did they have a sinful nature or, or were they born sinners? And they'll, most times they'll say no. Hopefully they'll say no. Otherwise they really have a problem with their God. Their God. Uh, if they say yes, they had free will and they were not born sinners, they did not have a sinful nature, well then why did they sin? And whatever answer they get to that, I said, well that's the reason why I believe everyone else has sinned. Same thing. The same problem. Where do babies go when they die? Do babies deserve hell? Because if babies are born sinners, with a sinful nature, and sinners go to hell, and babies have no ability to repent, no ability to trust in Jesus, and they haven't become born again, if babies die, where should they go? They should go to hell. But a lot of them, they don't like that idea. They're kind of, doesn't sit right with them, and rightly so, because their conscience is bothering them about it. But the fact is, they're not being consistent. If babies are sinners, they should go to hell just like every other sinner. But the fact that they're not sinners, the fact that they don't go to hell, proves that they're not sinners in God's eyes. Some people have seared their conscience enough through their false doctrine to actually say babies deserve hell. They'll actually say that. It tells you how far they've gone. Is homosexuality against our nature, against human nature? Almost one says so, right? If so, are there any other sins that are against human nature? Or is it just homosexuality? Does God hold people accountable for something they have no knowledge of or no ability to perform? Does God gen genuinely hate sin and love holiness? If that's true, then why would he take away free will? And why would he set it up in such a way where everyone's born a sinner with a sinful nature, which forces them to sin? 
Why would he set it up that way? If he genuinely loves holiness and gen- genuinely hates sin, why would he do that? You know, assuming their position is correct. Does God make us in his image still? Does he create us in our mother's womb? And here's the here's final question I'll give you here. Is there anything, anywhere in Scripture that clearly states a constitutional change within mankind after Adam sinned? Is there one verse, implicit or explicit, in Scripture that states that because of Adam and Eve's sin, that we all became sinners by nature and not by choice? Those are some questions I ask people on this. So this is some of my notes from my debate I had with that guy. Um, so sin, once again, is a choice to do what is wrong from God's perspective by someone who has knowledge or understanding of God's perspective on such an issue. Okay? That's what it is. Sin does not come from your parents or your great, 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 great grandparents. Influence can come from those people. Temptation can come from those people, but sin cannot come from them because you must choose yourself to give in to temptation. Okay? So sin doesn't come from the flesh. Your body, physical body, does not come from that. Our body is dirt, made from the dust of the earth. It's like God said to Adam, the same thing applies to us. To dust, from the dust you came, to the dust you shall return. And what happens when we go back to the dust? We turn back into dust, eventually. Can dust be sinful? Not by itself, it can't. I mean, you can make a mud ball and throw it in someone's head. That'd be a sinful way of using dust or dirt, right? Um, but it's not sinful in of itself. And dirt won't make you sin either. But where sin comes from, according to Jesus in Matthew fifteen nineteen, it comes from the heart. From the heart. Which is the seat of the will and the mind. Where decisions are made. I'm not talking about this, the physical heart now with the you know, all the aorta and uh, not the aorta, but the uh, atrium and the ventricles, and we're not talking about that. That's physical. We're talking about the spiritual seat of the heart, the the will and the mind, where all the decisions are made. That's where the sin comes from, from the heart of each individual after they're tempted, and they decide to give into it with full knowledge that what they're about to do is not what God wants them to do. And that can mean, it can be different for every person. I mean, all of us have a universal knowledge of some kind of thing from God's law. But then as we walk with God throughout this life, there will be things that God will say, okay, Vaughn, I want you to do this. Brother Kevin, I want you to do this. Brother Kevin, I want you to go to Washington, D.C. Guess what? If he doesn't obey that, he's in sin. But if God hasn't told me to go there, and I don't go there, am I in sin? So as we're walking through life, that's why I didn't... You see, in my definition of sin, I didn't, I didn't include anything about the law of God here. There's other things that are going to be required of you above and beyond the law of God. So it's, it's God's perspective on a certain issue, and your knowledge of it, that's going to determine whether you're in sin or not by how you respond to that. Okay? So sin does not come from our flesh. It does not come from Adam and Eve. It does not come from even demons or Satan. They can't make you sin. Some people make excuses like, the devil made me do it. Is that true? The devil can't make you do anything. 
Even if someone put a gun to your head and said, go sin, you ought to die rather than go sin. Even that's not making you do it. That's a strong influence, but it's not making you do it. And you can do all things through Christ's strength. You don't have to give into that. So sin is a choice to disobey God's will for you. God's, what God has revealed to you in life. Okay, does anyone have questions or objections or things they want to add? Well, John. In Galatians 5, I often hear this objection from both online and out witnessing with them and talking about this issue of flesh and not sin, the sort not being sin. Mm-hmm. In Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 16, it says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Mm-hmm. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Uh-huh. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Uh, works of the flesh are evident, so on and so forth. And so how do we uh, succinctly answer that objection uh, of verses like that to say the flesh does these things, or the flesh is tempted by these things as, as we view it. Mm-hmm. But from their view, that, that kind of verse, they would take that and say, look, the flesh wars against us. We wrestle with the flesh. We... Yeah, well, if you read verse 19, it says the works of the flesh, and that's what we're talking about here. And so we're talking about these things that are actually done and chosen to be done, like adultery, fornication, uncleanness. So they get, he gives a list of things that are the works of the flesh or the lust of the flesh. And he's, he's talking to these people because they used to do a lot of these things. Um, but... It says in verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. No, it's not a physical thing. Um, well, there is a physical thing to it. It's physical in this sense that uh, as you continue the same sin over and over again, your body begins to desire that. Your body has a, it's a habitual thing. It's a addictive thing, if I can use that word. Not, I don't mean addictive in the sense that you can't overcome it. I mean in the sense that your body begins to wake. For example, going back to drunkenness and fornication for me. When I, when, before I became a Christian, 15, 14, 15 years old, I said, you know what? I'm never going to fornicate. I'm never going to do anything until I got married. And I'm not a Christian by the, at the point in time. I'm never going to get drunk. But as soon as I started doing those things, my, my conscience stopped working as well as it was. And I started to have this, this addictive power over me to want to continue in those things. And even after you become a Christian, there's still a temptation to give into those things. Uh, no matter what your sin was, the longer you do a certain sin, the more entrenched it becomes. And the more difficult it becomes to overcome that sin. Okay? Um, of course, you can overcome it through the power of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes there are instances where people, I've heard testimonies of people who were had high on crack cocaine for six years. That's entrenched right there. I mean, you just do it for a year, it's entrenched in you. Six years? There's almost no hope for you. But these people will tell you that when they became a Christian, they had no desire for it ever again. Right. Sometimes God will do that, but he's not guaranteed to do that. He's not telling you he definitely will do it, but he will do that in certain, certain circumstances. But when it comes to these things, we're talking about the old man, which Romans 6 talks about. And um, let me just read that real quick here, because we're combining Paul's letters here to see what he's actually saying. Romans 6, it says, 
In verse uh, 5, it says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So we're talking about the body of sin, all the sin you've committed, that's the old man, that's the flesh that he's talking about in, in verses 16 through 26. It says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer had dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a, there's a reckoning there. I'm dead to that. I'm not going to do that any longer. And so there's a choice being made here. So when it goes back to this flesh here, it's not talking about necessarily um, the way you were born, because we're talking to, to adults here who've lived a life of sin. This uh, Gentile church in Galatia, they lived a life of sin, and he's saying, be led by the Spirit so you won't go back to that life of sin, that lust of the flesh you used to live in, uh, that's... It says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And so when you become a Christian, you have all these passions and desires that you had from when you were a sinner. Because you lived that way for however long you lived it, whether it was just a year, or it was 10 years, or it was 20 years, or 30 years. Some people, after they become a Christian, they go back to their sin. And they get to live in a life of sin again. And they're, they're, they're building up that, that entrenchment in their sin once again. When it comes to these issues. And so, but that's been crucified. It's dead. That's the old man. And we need to consider it dead and continue to walk according to the Spirit that we can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so, going back once again. So I say, walk in the Spirit so you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lust against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so we're talking about the lust that are just temptations that are coming up that you need to to walk in the spirit so you can overcome those things. Another thing is this is that um, when it comes to our bodies, our bodies do have natural desires that are from God. And these natural desires can be fulfilled in an unnatural way, in an unlawful way, or in a natural and lawful way. Um the desire for companionship between a male and a female. At some point in time, unless God's called you to be a eunuch for him, you will have that desire. For some it may be 13, 14. Some it may be 19, 20, 21. But you're going to have this desire at some point in time, and you need to understand that desire itself is not bad. It's how you fulfill that desire which decides whether you've done the right thing or the wrong thing. You can fulfill it in having a boyfriend or girlfriend which is lots of temptation, unnecessary temptation that God does not want you to have. You can fulfill it in, in engaging in fornication. You can fulfill it in lusting after people, which God does not want you to do. Or you can fulfill it in staying pure. You know, allowing your mother and father and other people in your, in your, in your sphere of influence to influence you to maybe go through courtship and eventually get married and stay pure until then. So there's different ways of fulfilling these natural desires that God has given us. It's not wrong to have those kind of desires. We have the desire for food. 
Now, you can fulfill desire in an unnatural way by going to Dunkin' Donuts and eating a couple dozen donuts. You'd probably throw up the next day. Maybe that day. Or you can fulfill it in a natural way and, you know, eat uh, good food. It's good for you. Drinking. You can fulfill that desire and drink some poison. Better known as alcohol or beer. Or you can fulfill it in a, in a good way by drinking water or other things that are fruit juice, things that are good for you in life. So these are natural desires you have. Uh, you have a na- you you know babies even from young they know they have free will, they know they do. Try getting a baby to hold your finger for a little while, or try to hold her hand for a little while and see if she tries to pull it away. She knows that that's her body, and she has, or he has free will over that body. But you need to use that free will properly, under your parents' submission, under God's submission. And so these are, these are, there's natural desires the flesh has, which can be fulfilled in a lawful way or unlawful way. And some of these things that are included in, in these works of the flesh are things that can be fulfilled in a lawful way. They're talking about an unlawful fulfilling of lawful desires. I, I plan maybe next week or week after they go through Romans 7. Um, talk about that. I've been studying that a lot. But uh, we'll be doing that this week. seems like most of the time that the flesh when you brought up the, those, those verses that are important about right. Jesus right. you'd have to translate them and you'd have to interpret it that way that, right. that means simple nature right. if you're going to use it that way but um, other than that um, I was trying to look up other other places that flesh might be used mm-hmm. in a, not in a negative way right. you know we know Romans 6 talking about the instruments use your body. That, right. that would be instruments right. of righteousness right. that would be one way it's right. talking about physical being right. used for something good and then Galatians uh, 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh Right. he's not saying he's living in sin No. the life no. which he now lives in the flesh I live by faith mm-hmm. in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so you can live a life in the flesh according to the spirit but it's not living in sin right. still living in the, in the flesh that, that, that's, you know what I mean I'm right. trying to say right. where, where is that word used in a Positive way. That right. would be a positive way. Right. And, and Paul is the only one who uses this word in this way. None of the other writers that I, I'm aware of are using this word flesh in a way where it can mean the way you used to live, your past life, like we see in Galatians 5 that Brother John brought up, or we see in Romans 7. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's the only one that uses it in that sense. I mean, you look at 1 John. It's written by John. He uses the word sarx in just a neutral way. Right. It's a very neutral way. Hebrews which I think is written by Paul, we see in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, is used in a very neutral way, it's talking about the body. But sometimes it's talking about the way you used to live in your body. Yes, but now you're living a different way in your body. And because you built up this body of sin that we saw in Romans 6, that's been done away with now, you built up this body of sin, now you must use your body properly. So he's using that term flesh just right. to identify that, but it also can be used, like he's using here in Galatians 2. Right. He's still living in the flesh. Right. Right, but other places, if you say, like in Romans eight, we're not to live according to the flesh. Right, because if you live in the flesh, you'll die. Right. So then you look at those two, and you think Paul says he lives in the flesh. He also says don't live in the flesh. Right. There are two different things right. that he's saying. There. Right. Right. And then in First in Corinthians nine, he says, I, I discipline my body. Yep. I bring it into subjection. Yeah. So that's the way he makes his body do good. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your body has desires. You just need to 
to put it this way, your body shouldn't be controlling you. You should be controlling your body. Okay? That's the way it should be. Uh, it's the member. You're not the member. Do you understand how that works? It's the, it's the instrument, not you. It's a vehicle. It's an instrument. You're not the instrument of it. It's the instrument of you. What's that? Yeah, you're the head of it. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you, you, you need to let your mind, which is where the conscious is, you let your mind, which is where the intellect and reason and logic is, let your mind control your body, not the other way around. Because when you let your body and the feelings you have, people, people sometimes let their feelings control them. No matter who it is, let their feelings control them. And they're letting their feelings control them, not walking according to the spirit. Because feelings aren't trustworthy. Unfortunately, they're not trustworthy at times. And so we need to control ourselves, not let ourselves control us. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to add something. Uh, were you talking about uh, sin uh, is based upon knowledge? Mm-hmm. And uh, I always look to this verse here uh, in John chapter 9. It says, uh, And Jesus said unto them, Thou hast uh, both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and worship him. And then it says, uh, And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into the world, that they which see might uh, not see, and they which you know, they see not uh, might see, and that which see might not see, be made blind. And it says, uh, And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say we see, therefore your sin remains. Mm-hmm. So, you know, see means understanding in this in this context. So, sure. they say, well, uh, are you saying we don't understand? And he's like, well, because you say you do understand, your sin remains. Because yeah. if you didn't really understand, there would be no sin. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So, yes. and that's really good to look to. And, and uh, there is a type of ignorance that someone could not actually be in sin. But then there's another type of ignorance as a, a ignorance of neglect. Mm. To where the only reason why someone's ignorant is because they neglect to search it out. And I believe we're held accountable to that type of ignorance because in the Old Testament, God held the nation of Israel accountable for the sins of not knowing the law. Yeah. And uh, that, that's what we see in the Old Testament. So there is mm-hmm. there is an uh, uh, ignorance and neglect uh, that we are held accountable for. So we have to be careful with that. Yeah, we may get into uh, unintentional ignorance, sins of ignorance or... Also, sins of omission, uh, hopefully next week or a week after that, um, because that comes up a lot, too. You know, I just, you know, we say something like, we, we all sin every time, we just don't know it. Well, if you don't know it, how do you know it? How, how can you say you sin every time, you just don't know it? How would you know that? How would you know you're sinning all the time if you don't know it? And once again, going back to all the scriptures we went through, including the John 9 one, there must be knowledge for there to be sin. Second Peter, he says, the, they willingly ignorant. forget. Right. Yeah, willingly ignorant. Right. Uh, and God brought judgment on them. They're willingly ignorant. Right. People that, right. so that, you know, that is an act yeah, of the so, will. Yeah, neglect is, is willing. Yeah. People willfully neglect. Yeah. 
had a question. What was that verse, brother, the other verse um, that you brought up, um, those that got to go into the promised land, they didn't, they were innocent. Yeah, Deuteronomy 139. Anybody else? Right. I like what you said, brother, about we uh, Romans two fourteen. They uh, not having the law by nature do the things in the law right. that we have actually a good nature. Right. Right. That's right. what we need to be. That's what we need to be telling people. Right. You're actually born with a good nature. Right. Not born with a wicked nature. Right now they've corrupted it and defiled it since then. They've perverted it and gone astray since then. But uh, they were born with everything good. It was from God. And Ecclesiastes seven twenty nine says that God made men upright and sought out many schemes. The law of God is good, and we're born with the law of God in our hearts. Yes. Yeah. Now that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Right. Amen. Psalm one thirty nine says. So even if you're fearfully and wonderfully made, even if you only have four toes, right? You know, even if you only have one arm. Uh, or a cleft lip, you're still fearfully and wonderfully made. The brother, there's a brother um, that was at, I believe he's a true, true brother at the uh, summit okay. the, in Nashville. Right. Uh, or from the conference there that they had. And he um, was born with no arms. Mm. And uh, he's born again now. Amen. And he plays the guitar with his feet. Oh, praise the Lord. The glory of God. Amen. He's, you know? Yeah. And he testified to, to, to God's Now, now, did God make a mistake there? No. So then God doesn't make a mistake any other way either with the way you're born. Yeah. And people people would like to say, I mean, that's the only person you can really accuse there. Is that, unless there was the, the mother was involved in doing drugs like that, you can say it was her fault. But if, if that's taken out of the equation, the only person you can blame now is God. Is God, God is to blame for the way someone is born. And so for the way you were born, who you were born to, when you were born, the culture you were born into, that was all God's doing. That was God's doing. And so it's, and everything he does is very good. He does nothing wrong. He makes no mistakes. And so whatever way you are born is God's doing. And that's what he wanted for you. Even if it does have no arms. And he wants it for your glory. Just like that man who was born blind. And the disciples said, well, was it his sin or his parents' sin? Neither. But for the glory of God. And surely it wasn't Adam's either. No, it wasn't Adam's either. If it wasn't his parents, it wasn't Adam's. That's right. Adam is just our, uh, our first human father. So, humanly speaking, he's our father. So, that's, that's the way we look at it. Hmm. <coughs> yep. Yes, Bill. Yeah, they don't know. I mean, that's why he's pitying them. I mean, they were sinners. That's one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go there. They they were wicked in, in Jonah's eyes, but in God's eyes, He pitied them because they they didn't have as much knowledge as Jonah did, as the Israelites did. 
And so he sent Jonah there to bring knowledge to them, and they, what they did, they repented, right? Yeah. And so one of the foundations for God's pity there was that them not knowing the right from the left. Yeah. yeah I looked at a verse uh, recently. I was considering using it this morning, but I didn't. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a decent scripture for that too. Yep. Not as explicit as some other ones that we use today, but I definitely uh, would consider that one too. Yeah. Amen. Or something, four eleven or. Yeah. You know, the only way someone can be judged for something is if they're guilty of it. The only way someone can be guilty of something is if they know it was right or wrong to do it, and they had free choice to do it or not. Think about it in our court of law. If someone was in the court of law and had no knowledge, I'm not talking about uh, an adult here claiming no knowledge. I'm talking about someone like a mentally handicapped person or a child legitimately having no knowledge of right or wrong in the situation that what they did. Or they were forced to do it in some way. Um, do you think that judge would hold them accountable? If earthly judge will, will do that, and that's just, we think the God of all the universe is going to do, the judge of all the universe. So the foundation of judgment is guilt. The foundation of guilt is a morally able and knowledgeable person who disobeys the law. Yeah, so there must, for there to be judgment, there must be guilt. For there to be guilt, there must be a person who has free choice and who knows what they're doing is wrong. That's the requirement. 